Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on May 18th, 2014. Today's message is titled, Our Walk to Emmaus, by Dr. Art Patsia, and is based on scripture, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 21, and chapters 28 to 35. I feel like breaking a rule that my mother taught me when I was a young kid. Do not stare at people. I enjoy looking out and seeing those whom we know, others who are new. Dorothy and I are thrilled to be here today for this weekend. We were attending a North American Baptist retired pastors conference in Sumas. Uh, this last week, and there's no way we can be this close to Vancouver and not come here. So thank you for inviting me, thank you for being here, and the opportunity to share the Word of God with you. I would like to ask if you could open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 and track with me as we go through this passage of Scripture. This is a post-resurrection passage. And that means that the events here that are described happened after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. There are several post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospels, and this is one that is, I think, the most exciting and helpful to me. No matter how we look at it, Luke 24 is a puzzling chapter at the end of the third Gospel. Geographically, it covers Galilee, Jerusalem, the village of Emmaus, a return to Jerusalem, Bethany, where the ascension took place. The words incorporate some some, uh, message from Mark, other verbal traditions about the resurrection, and Luke's own account. There are six named individuals, plus 11 disciples, a group of women and other disciples who are unnamed. There's a wide range of human emotion, irony, satire, suspense, and narrative. There's something mysterious also about Jesus appearing, vanishing, teaching, conversing, and taking pains to demonstrate that he has a physical body. If I were the director of a play, or a movie, I would divide this passage into four separate scenes. The first scene is verses 1, I'm sorry, verses uh, 1 through 12, yes. It's about the women who followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. They came with some ointments to embalm the body of Jesus, whom they heard was in the tomb. They enter the tomb, but they are perplexed, terrified, despondent, when they cannot find the body of Jesus. Two men, some kind of angelic beings, suddenly appear and they kind of reprimand them for looking for the risen Lord in a tomb. Have they forgotten, they say to the women, that Jesus was supposed to be handed over to sinners to be crucified and then on the third day rise again? Their memories suddenly seem to kick in, and they return to the tomb and tell the 11 disciples and others who were there, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of of James, and other women, 
and they share the news about the resurrection of Jesus. But in verse 11, Luke says, these words seemed like an idle tale to the apostles, and they didn't believe the testimony of the women. And Peter, ever the pragmatist and realist, runs to the tomb, peers inside and sees only empty linen clothes, and runs home in amazement. What an incredible 12 verses in scene one. Lost memories, doubt, confusion, angelic beings, and disbelief. Well, in scene two, Luke continues his story and focuses on Cleopas and his companion walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a town about seven miles, I'm sorry, 11 kilometers uh, away. Their topic of conversation isn't the economy. It isn't Obamacare. It isn't about the oil pipeline or the hockey playoffs or even the sunny weather that Dorothy and I brought from Pasadena to Vancouver. Their topic is about the resurrection. And quietly and unobtrusively, Jesus, of all people, begins to walk with them. And he asks them, uh, what are you discussing? What are you guys talking about? That's a pretty unwelcome intrusion, isn't it? You're enjoying the companionship of someone else, walking along, enjoying the nice fresh air and the sunshine, and then suddenly someone breaks in and says, hey, uh, what are you talking about? Well, that's Jesus, and he does that. And sometimes you and I are in that circumstance of being interrupted. Maybe a conversation we're having in the hallway, on the golf course, or wherever it may be. Someone comes along and says, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but... And that it's all happened. I had that experience recently on an airline. I attended a meeting in San Jose, I went through a long, long period of being tired and visiting with people, and I was so happy to get back on the plane from San Jose to Burbank. All I could envision was this beautiful airline dinner of steak, mashed potatoes, gravy, a nice dessert, and a cup of coffee, and wanted to sit down and then just relax, just to chill out. Wouldn't you know it? I get in the middle seat, and I sit beside Mr. Congeniality, who had his computer open and wanted to show me every picture of himself and his wife and his children and his home and his sports car. I was ticked off. This was an intrusion that I hadn't wanted, hadn't expected. But outwardly, of course, I'm art, I'm gracious, give the impression that I'm really interested in what's going on. But inwardly, I, I really yearn for quietness, for privacy and solitude. I wonder how the Emmaus disciples felt when they were walking along and suddenly this stranger comes and takes over in their conversation. What? audacity, Jesus, to interrupt this walk, this conversation, by asking what they were discussing. None of your business, really. 
Besides, you don't even look like someone we should know. Their sadness betrays the fact that they don't recognize the intruder, but quickly want to bring him up to speed on current events 101. If you really want to know, sir, we were talking about the things in Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Some women talked about an empty tomb, and even though it is the third day, you know, we Jews, we male Jews, don't really trust the testimony of women. Um, they can be heard and seen, but what they say doesn't really matter. Then the stranger reveals something profound to these disciples. He doesn't pull out his abbreviated King James Version of the Old Testament, but somehow he discusses the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and everything that was said about Jesus that was to take place. In my creative imagination, I kind of wonder how this went. Had Jesus put to memory all of these scriptures so that out of his mouth could flow every proof text about the burial and the resurrection of Jesus? I don't know. I would like to think that he had a chariot with all the scrolls of the law, the prophets, and so on, and he said to his servant Alexander, now bring volume four, part two, and I'm going to read it to these disciples. You know, we don't know what happened, and Luke abbreviates this by just saying, here it is, Jesus opens the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and talks about what is to take place. Instead of telling us whether the two disciples believed what the stranger was teaching, Luke mentions that they reached their destination, they show their hospitality by inviting the stranger to their home for lodging and table fellowship. As the scripture was being read this morning, a phrase hit me that I hadn't noticed before, that the appearance was that Jesus was going to keep going farther, and then they invited him to come. And that's so true in our life, isn't it, where if we do not invite Jesus to accompany us at the appropriate time, he moves on and something else takes place. Well, what takes place here is scene three. This is kind of a mini or a private Lord's Supper or Eucharist. You know the saying about ducks. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Well, here, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Sounds exactly like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Sounds like what other passages said when Jesus was breaking bread. And so what's important here in the breaking of the bread is that they recognize this stranger as the risen Lord. But he takes off, and so do they, and walk back to Jerusalem, where they find the 11 apostles. They exchange some discussions about the veracity of the resurrection, and the epiphany and the curiosity and the ignorance seem to disappear. In scene four, 
lo and behold, Jesus appears to the entire group. And the content of verses 36 to 43 show that the disciples still didn't have a clue about the resurrected body. At one point, it's a spiritual body. Another point, there's physical aspects to it. And Jesus seems to take great pains to illustrate that he can eat, that he can talk, that he can be with them, that he has flesh and bones. In fact, he says, if you give me some food, I will ingest it. And that will be a demonstration that my body is real. And besides, he says, the Moses and the prophets and so forth talk about this very thing. And the three things he mentions are that the Messiah must suffer and be raised the third day, that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations, and that the disciples are to be witnesses of these things, and that when the Holy Spirit comes, which does in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they will be able to take the gospel to all nations. In closing, I want to talk about this passage about the changes of the heart. And this isn't a takeoff on a famous book by Robert Bella at the University of California when he talked about the habits of the heart and the commitment to the American way of life and individualism. This chapter is about the change that comes to our hearts, to anybody's hearts who walks the road to Emmaus. First, there is the broken heart. And perhaps there isn't anything worse in life, is there, than a, to have a broken heart. It's a phrase we hear and use so much in our relationships. He or she really broke my heart. Usually it's related to some kind of disappointment in a person or a thing. That was like a knife stab in my heart. It hurt. And our text, in our text, it relates to a misunderstanding of Jesus' life and death. The followers of Jesus had such high expectations of him. They envisioned that he would overthrow the Roman army. They envisioned that they would be part of an inner circle that would rule over the people of Jerusalem. They envisioned somehow the coming of the kingdom of God being established on earth. And all of this didn't happen. It didn't take place. Their conceptions of what the risen Lord was supposed to do were so totally different from reality. Shortly before this, at Palm Sunday, they stood on the roadside and waved their palms and shouted, Blessed be the King who comes in the name of the Lord. It's interesting that all the time that Jesus was on earth and they heard his teachings and walked with him, they were guilty of selective hearing. They traveled, they listened, but were misunderstood. The followers of Jesus were without a leader and they were quickly falling apart. Cleopas and his partner were already on their way home from Jerusalem. Peter had gone back to Galilee in his life as a fisherman. What else could they do? Life has to go on, even though I don't understand it. The reports that Christ's tomb was empty had only confused the disciples more. Their entire world 
had come apart. Their belief and their hope had come to a dead end. They didn't realize that there was even a greater victory that had been won through the resurrection of our Lord. But here in this scene, the scene four, we see disbelief, disappointment, doubt, disillusionment, defeat, despair, and death. Look at verse 11. These words seemed like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. In verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And we seem to know nothing about the resurrected Lord. Human hope is a fragile thing when it invades our life and controls our destiny. It's often difficult to revive. Have you ever experienced total hopelessness when we believe that there is no way out? The disease has moved on and is irreparable. There's heartache and fear and illness. Many of you have gone through or are going through the uncertainty of illness. Just this last half year, we lost our daughter-in-law at 46 years of age to multiple sclerosis. The Saturday before Easter, my 48-year-old niece in Winnipeg was buried, the victim of a deadly cancer. We had hoped, but the hope that we had was misguided. Hopelessness is also felt sometimes in a marriage that is falling apart. In this, in the vice that is enslaving me. Or I feel so stuck in my job, I dislike my work, but I can't quit because there's nothing else available, because my family needs the money, and I don't know how to do anything else. And so in our heartaches and our heartbreaks, like the Emmaus disciples, we put up a wall of hopelessness around us, and we become trapped in our misery. We had hoped, we had hoped, but we ended up <clears throat> with broken dreams instead. In the 1994 edition of Christianity Today, a journal to which I subscribe, it relates that Vice President George Bush represented the United States at the funeral of former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Bush, it goes on to say, was deeply moved by the silent protest carried out by Brezhnev's widow she stood motionless at the coffin until seconds before it was closed. Then just as the soldiers touched the lid, Brezhnev's wife performed an act of great courage and hope, a gesture that must surely rank as one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience ever committed. She reached down 
and made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. There, in the citadel of secular atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life and that that life is best represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that this same Jesus might yet have mercy on her husband. But hope also has a very practical or pragmatic side. I subscribe to World Vision, now online, rather than the hard copy. And before and during Easter, they had a wonderful description of what they wanted to accomplish in their ministry. And so in big letters on the computer, I read, this Easter, put hope into someone's basket. Or, share the hope of the new life. Well, for this ministry, hope is four chickens for $50. Hope is a goat for $75. Hope is a share in a deep well for $100. Some people, as we know, have hope that they will be physically healed, that a volatile relationship will become more arenic, that things in the workplace will go better, that I even have a workplace. And for others, hope is a drink of clean water, maybe a soft-boiled egg, a glass of milk, a pair of glasses, a used pair of floppy flip-flops, a school with a teacher, a pencil but with an eraser, or a country without war and fear. We had hoped. Fortunately, heartbreaking isn't the end for the disciples because the text moves on to the heart-searching, heart-burning, or heart-warming experience that I see in the text. In time, these women and disciples become convinced about the reality of the resurrection. The heartbroken and weary travelers on the Emmaus Road also had another thing coming. The stranger who appeared makes himself visible through the breaking of bread. And the text says their eyes were open, they recognized him, their hearts burned with passion. Even as they were walking on the road, they sensed that something was different about this individual. And so now they are back in Jerusalem enjoying the shared experience with the Lord. One commentator put it nicely when he wrote, Jesus doesn't dumb them down, but rather in his infinite consideration for their brokenness and their bewildered mind, he comes next to them and joins them on their journey. He walks with them and he listens, and then he fills their hearts with promises from God's word and ultimately with hope and understanding. Broken-hearted people, those filled with doubts and disappointments, don't need a lecture on their shortcomings and failures. When hope fails, patience and love prevails. This event, to me, really has two dimensions to it. 
First, the passage teaches us to be aware of the Lord's coming to us, appearing to us, and teaching us. And the good news of the gospel is that the resurrected Jesus invites us to a heart-searching, heart-warming, heart-burning experience. You and I are on the Emmaus Road. This is where Christ meets us. It is he who brings hope to our brokenness. It is he who appears in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and becomes visible and extends grace to us. Secondly, as Jesus did, why do we not come alongside someone else and befriend them and listen and when appropriate, say something kind and considerate and helpful or instructive to them. And equally important here near the ending of the passage is that Jesus has an agenda for his disciples, you and me. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what the Father promised. And that was the Holy Spirit that came and is recounted in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What an incredible experience, this walk to Emmaus. The walk that you and I are on, at which we are invited to have the Lord come into our hearts and reveal to us who he is. It's an incredible trip. And as Jesus comes to us to heal our brokenness, to give us hope, he also commissions us to be his witnesses. Thanks be to God. You and I are on the Emmaus Road. What or whom do we meet? What do you see? Can you see? I want to invite you in your quietness and meditation to bow your heads, and I've brought along a musical selection that will be played, which recounts these words and this message. And so before I give the benediction, we'll have this played. So please bow your heads. <laughs> 